Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. It is always good to gather with you to worship the Lord together. And uh, I'm incredibly humbled and grateful for so many reasons. Um, it's hard for me sometimes to believe the Lord's kindness uh, that he has showed continually in so many ways. I'm incredibly grateful for my wonderful and, and godly wife, the children who bring so much joy uh, to our family. God has given, given uh, these as just precious gifts, and I'm keenly aware of how undeserving I am for any of them. And Genevieve and I are profoundly grateful to be members of this church family. Uh, we have had the opportunity to see this church family love each other well, serve each other in practical ways, pray for one another, encourage one another, enjoy life together. We have seen this uh, demonstrated many times in, in many ways, and uh, simply to be members of this church is a, is a profound gift and a blessing. And it's an incredible gift to serve on uh, this elder team. Uh, this elder team is a group of men who love the Lord, who love this church, who pray regularly for this church. Know that the elders are praying for you regularly. And I know that the members are also praying for one another and praying for the elders, and that is a wonderful thing. It's such an amazing thing to be a part of a, a church family that cares for each other, that prays for each other. Um, and I can't tell you uh, how much it means um, that the Lord would allow me to be a part of this. Uh, so I am incredibly humbled, I am incredibly grateful, and I'm excited about uh, what the Lord is doing in and through our church and the road that he has us on. When I think about our church, I think about just the incredibly wonderful people who love Christ and who love one another and are seeking to display the gospel through our lives together. And I know the Lord has given us incredible gifts in this church, incredible resources, and though we are a bunch of sinners I know the Lord wants to use us for, for his good purposes and for his glory. And we're going to see in Esther chapter 2 today that the Lord uses people even in spite of their, their sinfulness and their, and their failures. And I know that the Lord will, will use us in his kindness and his mercy and his power. He will use us for his good purposes. And so I am excited to see that. I'm excited to be a part of that. Um, I know that we are going to see much good fruit and we will have many reasons to give thanks and to rejoice. Um, and so with that, let's turn to God's word. A few weeks ago, I bought this book down in our bookstore downstairs. It's called The God Contest. And it's by an author uh, named Carl Lafferton. And he has several books of this nature where he takes stories from the Bible and writes them uh, in such a way uh, is that they are understandable and accessible for kids. And so I've read this a couple times with my kids, and they've enjoyed uh, reading, listening to the story. It's based um, on the story of Elijah um, and from 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Kings chapter uh, 16, where the people of Israel were uh, living in rebellion against God. They were serving all kinds of false gods, worshiping Baal, and Elijah said, okay, let's, let's see who's the real one true and living God. And so they had this contest to see who the real God was. And the prophets of Baal tried to have Baal call down fire on an altar, and they did it to no avail. And Elijah mocked him and said, maybe he's asleep, maybe he's going to the bathroom. My kids love that part. That's their favorite part of the story is when they say maybe he's on the toilet. And, uh, and so he mocks them. And then, of course, as the story goes, we know what happened when Elijah prayed. The Lord rained down fire on his altar, which was drenched with water, demonstrating um, beyond a shadow of a doubt that Yahweh is the one true and living 
God. It is one example of many where the Lord has proved himself in powerful ways. And we see in scripture um, that the God has done that. He has demonstrated that he is the one true and living God. He has demonstrated his power. He has demonstrated his glory in these obvious, demonstrable ways. But we also see in scripture that there are times when the Lord works in less obvious ways that are a little bit more difficult to perceive. Sometimes he works in ways that are behind the scenes, so to speak. And that is what we see in the book of Esther. We began a sermon series last week going through the book of Esther, and we have entitled this series Hidden King. We've entitled it Hidden King because in Esther, the name of the Lord is never mentioned. We don't see them explicitly praying to the Lord or worshiping the Lord. But we know that the Lord is the one who is orchestrating the events of Esther to accomplish his good purposes. And last week, we saw in chapter 1 that the story of Esther took place during the reign of King Ahasuerus, who reigned over the vast Persian Empire from 486 B.C. to 464 B.C. And in his Persian Empire, there were living Jews, including in the capital city of Susa. And last week we saw that his queen, Vashti, after throwing this incredibly lavish, expensive, grandiose party, refused a request uh, of the king to appear before him and, and all his friends to show off her beauty. She refused this que- request, and thus she was stripped of her title as queen. She was effectively divorced as her husband and banned from ever seeing him again. And chapter 2 picks up at least a few years after the events in chapter 1. So I'm going to read chapter 2, and I encourage you to follow along as I read. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimea son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter." So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem." Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. 
Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in, all the, uh, in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred, or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Tiresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged in the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Well, it took a while, but the king's anger finally subsided, and when he eventually calmed down, he remembered Vashti. And we get the impression when he remembered Vashti, he may have had some regret. And he also may have had a selective memory as he remembered what had been decreed against her in passive terms rather than remembering what he decreed against her. With all the references to his alcohol consumption, perhaps his memory of how it all went down was a little hazy. Maybe he missed her and maybe he realized he overreacted as he couldn't get his beautiful queen back because of the decree. Whatever the case, he seemed to be a little down about the whole situation, which is why his advisors felt the need to come up with a plan to cheer him up. And not surprisingly, the plan they came up with was terrible, which of course Ahasuerus thought it was great. The plan involved robbing the empire of many beautiful young virgin women who would be taken into the king's harem so that they could participate in a prolonged beauty contest to determine which one brought the most pleasure to the king. Whichever woman pleased him the most would be chosen to be the next queen. The criteria for a woman to be taken for the contest basically boiled down to being a young virgin, beautiful, and probably compliant unless they end up with another Vashti situation. In order to find the one, many women were taken away from their homes, probably with no say in the matter, in order to compete against other women to find out who was most beautiful in the king's eyes. In that time and culture, it may very well have been considered an honor to be chosen for the harem. Perhaps some of the women considered it a privilege to be chosen. Perhaps some considered it a curse. Ian DeGuid notes that for that context, it's hard to know if the ones chosen or the ones left behind were the ones who were disappointed. 
but the majority likely accepted it as a matter of course. That's just the way it worked in the Persian Empire. Another consequence of this process was that a lot of young men in the kingdom were likely deprived of wives. The king's actions made it more difficult for men to get married and start a family. And all of this for what purpose? To please one man. The king's advisors sought to please the king and satisfy his desires by placing an inordinate emphasis on external beauty. There was no mention on the kind of character they were looking for. There's no mention of the skill set of the participants or their experiences or education or anything else of that nature. It was all about their physical beauty. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with enjoying beauty in the world around us. The psalmist spoke of enjoying the beauty of the Lord. In Psalm 27, 4, he wrote, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We see beauty in the Lord. We see beauty in creation. We see beauty in art. We see beauty in a car show. In the Song of Solomon, we see two betrothed Israelites who delight in the beauty of the other and look forward to being married and enjoying sexual intimacy. It is good for husbands and wives to enjoy the beauty they see in one another. King Ahasuerus, however, put an inordinate emphasis on physical beauty and was looking to physical beauty in women to gratify a sinful desire. We know this because of the way that he treated the women, making them participate in a beauty contest, competing against one another, spending exorbitant amounts of money on beauty treatments. I think it's worth noting here the difference between Ahasuerus and the Lord. The king and his officials were obsessed with outward appearance and physical beauty. And this obsession we see here in chapter 2 was not unique to that culture. It was not unique to that time and place. We see plenty of examples of this in our own time, in our own context, in the world around us. We see obsession with physical appearances, with physical beauty. But the Lord is able to see more than external appearances. And the Lord cares for much more than external appearances. A man named Samuel learned this when he was tasked with finding a new king for Israel to replace the wayward king Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord sent Samuel to the house of a man named Jesse because the Lord had chosen one of Jesse's sons to be the next king. And when Samuel saw Jesse's son Eliab, he thought to himself, that's the one. He made a snap judgment based on Eliab's physical appearance assuming that based on the way he appeared to him, he would be the next king. But as much as Eliab looked the part, he wasn't the Lord's choice. And in verse 7 we read, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, like King Ahasuerus, but the Lord looks on the heart. And when it talks about the heart, it's talking about the inner person. When the scripture speaks of the heart, it's speaking of who we are. Who we are fundamentally. Who we are in our inner person. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord sees past external appearances to see who we truly are at our core. And the Lord cares deeply 
about who we are, about our inner person, about our hearts. The Lord sees the heart, the Lord cares about the heart, and the Lord wants us to give special attention to the heart. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, wives are encouraged to pursue true beauty. We read, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do you see the difference between Ahasuerus and the Lord? For Ahasuerus, physical beauty was very precious. It was the big deal. It was the thing. But what's precious in the eyes of the Lord is who we are in our inner person, having a Christ-like heart, becoming more and more like Christ. That's what he sees. That's what he values. That is what is precious to him. Contrary to Hazarus, his officials, and the world around us, the Lord cares about the inner person more than external appearances. Well, getting back to our story, the year-long beauty treatments were not even the worst part of the process. The process culminated with each woman going in to sleep with the king. They started in the harem of virgins and ended up in the harem of the concubines. Concubines were the officially recognized mistresses of the king who had a lower status than his wife or wives. And they would only see the king again if they were called back by name. So they began in one group of virgins and ended up in the group of concubines. Everyone knew at that point that they had slept with the king. And they would remain there unless the king called them by name. Can you imagine how degrading that was? What we see is that the author of Esther does not cover up the unsavory nature of this process. Regardless of how the people at the time felt about it, in the eyes of the Lord, this was a wretched way for the king to find a new queen. Yet, this was the world God's people found themselves in, and this is the context whereby we are introduced to the two main characters of our story. First, we are introduced to Mordecai, a Jew who was a descendant of Benjamin, as well as Kish, which meant he was a relative of King Saul, a fact that becomes a little more important as the story unfolds. However, the detail that the author calls attention to the most is Mordecai's status as an exile. Did you notice in verse 6 that the phrase carried away is used three times? Well, that phrase carried away comes from the Hebrew word that can also be translated exiled. And so if you read a more literal translation, such as the New American Standard Bible, you'll see that word exiled used three times. Listen to verses four and f- uh, 5 and 6 again from the NASB. We read, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimea, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. Three times. In case you missed it, Mordecai was an exile. As an exile, he lived under the pagan rule of the Persian Empire. The exile was a reminder of God's judgment on his people. The reason that the Jews were living in exile was because that they had disobeyed the Lord repeatedly. They had repeatedly worshipped false gods, practiced immorality, perpetuated injustice. 
They were guilty of all these things. The Lord warned them time and time again through his prophets that they needed to repent and that they needed to return to being faithful to the covenant that the Lord had graciously established with them. The Lord had graciously established a covenant with them and it had established them as his covenant people of all peoples on the earth. Yet rather than responding with gratitude and worship, they worshiped false gods. And they refused to repent. They were stiff-necked. And the Lord warned them that judgment was coming in the form of exile, yet they persisted in their sin and rebellion. And so the Lord followed through with his warnings. And he used the Babylonians to take the people of Judah into exile. And of course, the Persians eventually conquered the Babylonians. And that is why the Jews, such as Esther and Mordecai, were living under the pagan Persian Empire. Mordecai and Esther were second or third generation exiles, which meant the life of exile was all they knew. The the Jews living in Susa, along with them, experienced the consequences for the sinful rebellion of their ancestors. Sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. And sometimes we suffer because of the sins of others. And sometimes others suffer because of our sin. And the exile was a painful reminder of these things. And living as God's people in exile presented all kinds of challenges for the Jews. For Mordecai and his cousin Esther, living in the exile in Susa meant that they would be caught up in this process whereby the king would select a new queen. Esther, for her part, is introduced as the one whom Mordecai was raising, Her parents had died, and she was the daughter of Mordecai's uncle. Because she was an orphan, he took responsibility for her and raised her as his own daughter. And the author makes sure we know that she had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. It was her beauty and her figure that led the king's officials to take her up into the king's harem. And she was placed under the care of Haggai. Now, Mordecai is certainly commendable for raising Esther. He's certainly commendable for taking her in and raising her as his own daughter. But we see no mention of any resistance with Mordecai when Esther was taken into the harem. We see no mention that he tried to prevent this from happening. And what we read was that Esther quickly won the favor of Haggai, which clearly meant she was willing to go along with the process. Some have argued that she really didn't have a choice in the matter, and that may be true to some degree. On the other hand, consider what happened earlier in the story. The king made a request of Queen Vashti, and she understood how things worked in the empire. Yet, she chose to refuse the request of the king and suffer the consequences. Couldn't Esther have done the same? After all, she belonged to God's people, and there were other Jews before Esther who had resisted compromise living in exile in the Babylonian and then Persian Empire. We read about this in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. We see in these chapters that Daniel and his friends served their pagan masters faithfully without compromising their faithfulness to the Lord. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or wine. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the massive golden image of Nebuchadnezzar even after being threatened by execution by way of a fiery furnace. Daniel resolved to pray to the Lord even when it was forbidden for 30 days and he faced the threat of execution. All that said, 
while Daniel and his companions risk their lives in exile by remaining devoted to Yahweh, we can't say the same about Esther and Mordecai at this point in the story. Instead, Esther seemed to go along with the program, earning Haggai's favor and even taking his advice. When it was her turn to have a night with the king, she only took what Haggai advised her to take. It sure sounds like she wanted to do well in this contest. Again, Ian DeGuid writes, Resistance was not high on her program at this point. On the contrary, she seemed content, even eager, to be assimilated. Tremper Longman is a Bible scholar who's taught on the book of Esther, and he has said that there was a tradition amongst rabbis that when it was Esther's turn to go in and see the king, she didn't actually sleep with him. Instead, she read him the Torah. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if she had simply read him the Torah, she would not have won the contest. We simply see no evidence whatsoever that she did anything other than what was expected of her. But do you see the instinct that would motivate the rabbis to come up with this tradition? Obviously, they wanted to make Esther, the heroine of the story, look better than how she appears in the story. She was, after all, a Jewish hero. They didn't want this Jewish hero to be one who slept with a pagan king, one to whom she was not married. They wanted to try to protect her integrity, her honor. They wanted to make her look better than she really was because she was one of their heroes. But that instinct to make the hero of the story look better than she actually was runs contrary to the testimony of Scripture. The author of Esther makes no attempt to ease our minds about Esther's questionable moral behavior. Similarly, the Bible makes no attempt to hide or cover up the immoral behavior of many of the Bible's main characters. Noah was described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and the Lord used him to preserve humanity. Yet after the Lord saved him in the flood, we read an unsavory story where he gets drunk and passed out naked. Abraham was the one God chose to make a new nation through, whom all families of the earth would be blessed. Yet he lost faith when his wife did not became, become pregnant and he got his wife's servant pregnant. There were also times when he went into other countries and he lied about the fact that his wife was his wife and told her to lie about it and say that she was his sister because he was afraid of what would happen to him. She risked something happening to her for his own self-preservation. Moses, one of the most prominent figures in the Bible, whom the Lord used to deliver his people out of Egypt, murdered a guy. The famous King David committed adultery and then had a man killed to cover it up. We could go on. The main characters of the Bible, many of whom are considered heroes of the faith, were sinful human beings who were deeply flawed. And the authors of Scripture don't try to cover that up. The story of God's people throughout history is a messy one. And the Scripture's testimony regarding our story is authentic. The messiness of God's people continues in the New Testament, even after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. You might think that we as God's people, who now have the benefit of knowing the fullness of the gospel and have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, would finally get our act together. But of course, that's not the case. It's easy for us to look at the church today and think, man, the church is messed up. 
and has a lot of problems. And that is true. We also might be tempted to romanticize the church in the first century as if the church in the first century didn't have serious problems. But if you learn about what was taking place in the church of Corinth, for example, during the first century by studying 1 Corinthians, you will be quickly disabused of any romantic ideas regarding the early church. Even the New Testament discloses some ugly truth about God's people. And I think it's important for us to see the sin and failure of God's people throughout history and realize that this is our story. It is a joy to belong to God's people. What a gift. What a privilege that God has adopted us into his family and now we have God as our father, Jesus as our elder brother, and one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is amazing. It is extraordinary. And it is messy. It's messy because we are sinful people. I know that I have contributed to the messiness through my own sin. And I know that I've experienced the messiness because of others' sin. Belonging to God's people, being a part of this story, is messy. I think it's important for us to see this because it highlights God's grace toward his people throughout history, which is also our story. The purpose of bringing these things to light, these unsavory details, this questionable behavior, these sinful flaws of the heroes is not to bash them, but to highlight God's grace towards sinners such as us. God is gracious, merciful, patient, and kind toward his people. It was true with Esther and the Jews in Susa, and it is true today of the church. And God's grace toward us and our understanding of his grace toward us helps us to persevere in pressing into the family of God even when it is messy. Rather than responding by pulling back, turning away from God's people, we understand that God has been merciful to us, that God has been patient toward us, and that anyone who's wronged us is just as much in need of God's mercy as we are. When we see God's mercy toward his people, when we see God's mercy toward us, it helps us to persevere in living out our identity as God's people. Well, Esther entered the harem, won the favor of Haggai, kept her Jewish identity concealed, followed the advice of Haggai, won the favor of the king after spending a night with him, probably not reading the Torah. Thus, the Lord elevated a young, orphaned, Jewish exile to the place of queen in the vast Persian empire. But that is not all we see in chapter 2. Not only did Esther make a shocking, meteoric rise to become queen of Persia, but Mordecai also just happened to be at the right place at the right time to do something incredibly significant. He discovered a plot to kill the king. And usually if people are plotting to do something, that could get them killed if discovered. They try to keep a tight lid on it. But for whatever reason, Mordecai was able to discover this plot and he made known to Esther this plot, who in turn told the king in the name of Mordecai. 
Even though Ahasuerus was a pagan king, Mordecai worked for his well-being and uncovered the plot. He told Esther, and Esther told the king, in the name of Mordecai, and the conspirators were put to death. Then chapter 2 ends in a very interesting way. Mordecai's good deed is recorded, but not rewarded. It was recorded. It was recorded before the king that it was Mordecai who uncovered this plot, saving the life of the king. But nothing was done. He was given no notoriety. He was given no recognition. He was given no gifts. You might think the king, out of gratitude, would do something kind for Mordecai. If not out of kindness, out of self-interest, in the sense that the king would want to not only punish the wrongdoers, but bless the ones who did right to encourage others to do what was right, to encourage others to help protect him as well. Again, Ian DeGuid writes, In general, the Persian kings were extremely diligent and generous in rewarding those who had served well. They kept, they kept careful lists of the king's benefactors, those who had done them a favor, in order that no good deed, from the empire's perspective, might go unrewarded. The Persian kings were diligent and generous to reward those who served well, but at this point in the story, Mordecai is not rewarded. And we must remember that none of the details included by the author of our story are mere accidents. For now, we see that the Lord used Mordecai to save the life of the king and ensured that a record of his good deed was kept in the royal court. Well, we can't get around the fact that this story has some unsavory elements. We can't get around the fact that Esther and Mordecai's behavior at times was questionable. We can't get around the fact that there are some questions that the author of Esther is simply not interested in answering. In a sermon entitled Beauty and the Beast, David Strain said, Esther 2, instead of offering us an example to follow, invites us to face the reality of life in which women are often objectified and made victims, where men can be predatory, and where, at least for some, fear is often more powerful than faith. Esther 2 does not flinch from narrating for us this simple, ugly fact of life in ancient Persia where people were treated as commodities. It is no fairy tale story of a poor Jewish girl falling in love with Prince Charming. Esther too is a story, the like of which, when we hear it on the news, we can scarcely bear to contemplate. And yet it is here, amidst all the moral ambiguities and the shocking abuses that dog Esther's steps, that we are being invited to trace the footprints of the sovereign God who is working in and through and despite the sin and suffering that we find here for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The big takeaway from chapter 2 is that the two main characters became uniquely positioned to bring about the deliverance of God's people. Not through a wonderful process, but through an ugly process. Not because of their righteous resolve, but in spite of their moral compromise. The Lord used these two people, in spite of their questionable behavior, to preserve the offspring of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the line of Judah, and the royal lineage of David. The Lord raised them up and used them to deliver his people from being wiped out because he had a promise to fulfill for them and through them. He promised to send a Messiah, a true hero who had no character flaws, not even a trace of sin. God had a promise to fulfill, to send the Messiah 
who would come through the Jewish people. And this Messiah would come into the world as one who was without sin. And unlike the rest of us, he would be the one who resisted temptation. He perfectly resisted temptation, perfectly obeyed the will of God. He was the one who was without sin, and yet he was put to death on a cross as though he were a terrible sinner. Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place to take the punishment for our sin. See, God sees the sinfulness and the messiness of his people, and his response was not to recoil. His response was not to give up and abandon us. His response was to send Jesus Christ into the world to save messy sinners like you and I. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sin, and he rose from the grave conquering death. And after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. The good news is that all who believe in Jesus will be saved. If you're not a Christian, our greatest hope and our greatest prayer for you is that you will turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, and be saved. If you've noticed that the church is messy, you are right. If you've noticed that the church is full of hypocrites, you are right. And we invite you to join the club. You'll fit right in. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all hypocrites. We're all messy. We're all in need of God's grace. And in his love and in his grace and his mercy, he has sent us a savior through the Jewish people. His name is Jesus Christ. Believe in him and be saved. The Lord saves sinners such as us. Moreover, the Lord uses deeply flawed people, people who have sinned and failed in many ways to accomplish his good purposes. As God's people, we are a messy bunch. We sin, we fail, and we compromise in all kinds of ways. But scripture reminds us that his steadfast love endures forever. I hope the book of Esther encourages us individually in our faith. And I hope Esther encourages us collectively as a church. I hope we are encouraged individually in our faith. I hope we are encouraged to trust in his providence at work in our lives, in spite of our sin, in spite of our suffering. He is at work even when it is not obvious to us, even when it is difficult to perceive. And he uses us for his good purposes. So I hope and pray that we will be encouraged in our faith, and I hope that we will be encouraged as a church. He wants to use us in spite of our sins, in spite of all our failures, in spite of our flaws, in spite of our messiness. He wants to use us here and now for his good purposes. He wants to use us to be an encouragement to one another, to love and serve and build one another up. And he wants to use us to be a faithful gospel witness here in Snohomish and beyond for his glory. And he will do so according to his grace according to his kindness, according to his patience, and according to his power at work in us. We're sinful, we're messy, but he is faithful and he is kind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. Your word is a precious gift. And we pray that you would use your word to shape our thinking, to shape our attitudes, to shape our actions, to shape our words. Conform us to the image of Jesus, we pray. We give you thanks and praise that you are merciful to sinners such as us. 
We get to give you thanks and praise that you use sinners such as us for your good purposes. We pray that you would grow and strengthen our faith, that you are working even when we do not see, even when it is difficult to perceive, strengthen our faith. And we pray that you would strengthen our faith as a church, that you want to use us in spite of our sin, in spite of our messiness, you want to use us for your good purposes. And we humbly ask that you will do so. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.